When Clint Buffington was a kid, his family had a very specific vacation hobby. My family and I are kind of beachcombers. Most folks dig around in the sand to find the biggest shells or the prettiest ones, not the Buffingtons. We would compete to find the smallest one because that would show who had the sharpest eyes. He took a trip to the Caribbean with his dad in his early 20s. And while walking down the beach, those sharp beachcombing eyes spied something way cooler than a shell. And all of a sudden, I see this blue bottle, this bright blue bottle, lying on the sand as if someone had just put it there. You know, the cork's still in it. And then he noticed what was inside. Clear as day, there was just this orange paper rolled up inside of it, like, boom, this is a message in a bottle. I was like, okay, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure I know what I have here. The bottle was sealed shut with a rubber cork attached to a piece of floss. He opened it. I literally just used a corkscrew, you know, just... (laughs) Inside, he found a message from a couple that had traveled across the Atlantic on a sailboat. At the bottom of the page was an AOL email address. So Clint reached out to the couple. And surprise, their AOL was still active. They wrote Clint back. Just the, the joy and the sense of wonder in their email back to me that was like, it brought their whole adventure right back to them. They were like right there again on that boat, crossing the ocean, reliving all of that. I mean, no one expects their message to be found. That's what's so magical about it, right? Clint became obsessed with finding these magical messages. He even began studying ocean currents to figure out the likeliest places to find them. For over a decade, he's collected 98 of these bottles. Some are from school kids running science experiments. Some are romantic pleas, lonely sailors looking for a boo thing. Love, connection, and a little bit of melancholy. I mean, what screams Valentine's Day more than that? From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. With the lover's holiday coming up, we here at Not Past It are sending out our own little messages in a bottle to you. Our producers have prepared stories from across history about love of all kinds that all took place on Valentine's Day. We're setting sail on the love boat after the break. We're sending our first message in a bottle out into the audio waves. Okay, come on. That's pretty good, right? And what kind of messages do you put in bottles anyway? How about a Valentine's Ode? Our producer, Laura Newcomb, takes us to a young writer's early foray into love poetry. It's late, and I've got about, oh, 5,000 tabs or so open on my computer. A distressing number of them are helping me keep track of nightgowns. And to be totally clear, nightgowns is not a euphemism for something actually sexy. No, no. I'm on a website called the Vermont Country Store, admiring bed dresses that are puritanical in their modesty, mostly flannel, and sometimes even ruffled. So what brought me to ye old jammies? The influence of a cool teenager, obviously. Her name is Emily Dickinson. 
And despite having been dead for over 100 years, she's having a bit of a moment right now. Maybe you've seen the Apple TV show Dickinson, where she's played by the actress-slash-literal pop star Haley Steinfeld. This Emily Dickinson twerks, tells off Thoreau, she flirts with Wiz Khalifa, all while wearing a series of perfect looks, including a number of incredible nightgowns. In real life, the genius poet brought us some of the best works in the English language about hope and madness, faith and despair, the earthly and the divine. And outside of her hometown of Amherst, Massachusetts, she was largely unknown. She was also kind of a loner. After she reached her 30s, she rarely left her family's home. She was known to speak to visitors from behind her bedroom door, and she never married. So you might be surprised to know that Emily Dickinson's earliest known poem is, of all things, a valentine. The tradition of exchanging poems on Valentine's Day was established in England and had made its way over to the U.S. by the mid-1800s. And back in Emily's day, it was normal for young people to celebrate the holiday over the course of a full week. So, Valentine's haters, you can go ahead and count your blessings that you only have to endure it for one day. Emily wrote that early love poem during Valentine's week when she was 19 years old and slipped it to a lawyer, this guy Elbridge Bowden, who worked with her father. Emily and Elbridge exchanged a few letters. He once lent her a copy of Jane Eyre, that kind of thing. The two, as far as we know it, were just friends. So this Valentine's Day poem, it seems like a strictly friendly flirt, which makes sense when you consider that the whole thing is basically a joke. No, I love yous. No, roses are red and violets are blue. But instead, a sophisticated satire of every overblown love poem from across history. She begins, Awake ye muses nine, sing me a strain divine. There she is, dunking on the ancient Greeks and tropes from classical literature. Emily goes big on imagery, taunting Elbridge by listing all the various couples that exist on Earth and beyond. The bride and then the bridegroom, the two and then the one, Adam and Eve, his consort, the moon and then the sun. And she even makes fun of poor sweet Elbridge for being so single. All things do go according, in earth or sea or air, God hath made nothing single but thee in his world so fair. Then she really goes for the jugular. Thou art a human solo, a being cold and lone. Wilt have no kind companion, thou reapest what thou hast sown. Brutal. Definitely less of a love poem and more of a roast. But it is kind of reassuring to know that even Emily Dickinson participated in the age-old tradition of using humor to mask your real feelings. Emily was careful about who she chose to really share herself with. Almost all of her poetry remained unpublished until after her death. In total, she wrote thousands of poems. All but a few stayed hidden in a chest at the foot of her bed. Lots of messages and lots of bottles, not yet tossed into the sea. She kept her truest love poems secret. And that might be because the person she was actually in love with was her sister-in-law, Susan Gilbert. Scholars generally agree that Emily and Sue were in a long-term romantic relationship. Emily wrote to Sue and about her, vividly expressing her feelings for her. 
Just about 10 years after her joke Valentine, she wrote another poem, widely speculated to be about Sue. And she didn't hold back. You might notice the tone of this one's very different, totally sincere and full of longing. Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee. Wild nights should be our luxury. Wild nights, okay. By 19th century standards, this is pretty spicy stuff. Futile, the winds, to a heart in port. Done with the compass, done with the chart. Well, 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 it sounds like somebody found love in a hopeless place, that place being America in the 19th century. And in case there was still a chance you thought this was a poem about seafaring and not something else, Emily goes on to really bring it home. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. More in thee? She's basically saying she wants to anchor her ship in somebody's port. I think you get it. A little hornier than you might have expected based on her nightgowns. Some of the thrill of reading Emily Dickinson isn't so different from finding a message in a bottle. It's hard to say whether she expected or wanted her words to be found. But they were, and since then, they've traveled far beyond Amherst and into the hands of anyone lucky enough to find them. All right, we're moving right along from a woman who went hard on the page to a man who goes hard in the paint. Producer Ramoy Phillip brings us a message in a bottle to a certain basketball fandom. This is a new kind of love in basketball. Take it away, Ramoy. On a cool Valentine's night in Toronto in 2012, news cameras captured one of the greatest love stories of all time. A Valentine's story like no one had ever seen before. It all started in a garden in New York City like every great love story does. No, not that kind of garden. This one. This is Madison Square Garden where the New York Knicks play. It's considered the mecca of professional basketball. In February of 2012, the Knicks were in need of a spark. They'd been a middling team for roughly two decades. And this year, they'd been depleted by injuries. It seemed like it was going to be another annoyingly typical, frustrating, lackluster Knicks season. Until we met... Jeremy Lin... You're a pretty big ovation. Jeremy Lin is a six foot three Taiwanese American Harvard graduating Hooper. And Lin, he wasn't meant to be a star. Hell, he'd only been signed on a short term contract. A worst case scenario, kind of backup plan. But when Lin stepped onto the floor at MSG, Lin flips it up and puts it in. Jeremy Lin, once again, Jeremy Lin knocks it down. My dude came to play. And Jeremy Lin continues to excite this crowd. Perhaps the most unlikeliest thing to be the hero. What a story here tonight at the Garden. Jeremy Lin, a huge spark. That started Lin's sanity. A 27-game run where this one player pretty much single-handedly filled the Garden and lit New York City up. Each morning, the papers printed a new Lin Sanity headline. 
He was all everyone could talk about in bodegas and bars. This average-looking Asian-American kid was the talk of the town. Did you see what he did last night? The Knicks got it this season. Datlin, he's so nasty. But it wasn't just the highlights. It was bigger than that. This moment of insanity, it felt special because Asian-Americans weren't usually seen as professional basketball players. There was the incredibly tall Yao Ming, but outside of Yao, there weren't really any other well-known Asians who had played in the league. This is what makes Jeremy Lin special. Oh, what a play for Jeremy Lin! Lin over Dirk. Lin's star continued to rise over the weeks. He led the Knicks to an unexpected win against the Los Angeles Lakers and their star, Kobe Bryant. Lin scored 38 points against Kobe's Lakers, the most points he scored during Lin's sanity. New York got even more lit. And you know, New Yorkers love to talk shit on LA, so this was pretty huge. By this time, all of New York was in love with Lin. But a true love story needs romance. You need a bow for a bro. Oh, Seahawks throws it down. What a perfect pass from Jeremy Lin. And a difficult finish for Landry Fields. There steps in fellow Knicks player Landry Fields. Landry was another not-so-typical professional basketballer. He graduated from Stanford University. Like Harvard, not known for hooping. Needless to say, Landry and Lynn, they hit it off. Lynn literally moved into Landry's house, famously crashing on his couch. And as Lynn's sanity took off, before games began, Lynn and Landry would line up in front of each other and proceed in one of the dumbest, dorkiest pregame handshakes of all time. Y'all, this was dumb, but so sweet. You see, with their hands, they'd mimic putting on glasses. Then one of them would hold out an imaginary book. The other would intensely mime turning through the imaginary pages. Then you'd get the all-too-typical sports mating ritual. The, bro, I love you, butt slap. So cliche, so dorky, but seemingly so in love. Then, ten days into Linsanity came Valentine's Day. The ultimate day to consummate one's love. Or at least watch some basketball. On February 14, 2012, in Toronto, fans watched as the Knicks battled the Toronto Raptors. And it was a battle. Towards the end of the game, the game was tied. The clock wound down and Lynn showed no sign of wanting to pass. He slowly dribbled down, and with the swag of a Greek god, Lynn pulled up. Win for the win! Fans everywhere celebrated. The love for Lynn was at its peak right then. And you know who was right there to embody that love? That's right, his bestie, Landry Fields. After the game, Lynn stood courtside. All the cameras in his face, from out of nowhere came Landry. He quickly hugged the shit out of Lynn. And then, Landry planted a big fat kiss on Lynn. On the cheek. 
for all the world to see. Well, a nice kiss from Landry there. <laughs> In the end, Lynn's sanity didn't last. Lynn played great the rest of the season, but the Knicks didn't sign him to a new contract. So Lynn signed with the Houston Rockets. But I always remember that time. How this unassuming underdog came out of nowhere and dominated the sport I love. I also think about how Lynn and Landry became these basketball brothers, not afraid to show their affection, no matter how dorky, no matter how sweet. And also how Lynn and Landry, in rather atypical fashion, found each other. In a garden in New York City. An Adam for an Eve. A Lynn for a Landry. A bow for a bro. Coming up, a love letter that is out of this world. Literally. That's after the break. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back. Our final message in a bottle isn't a love letter to just any one person. It's meant for every earthling who has ever lived. Producer Amy Padula has got that story. Back in the late 1970s, NASA launched an unmanned spacecraft called the Voyager 1 probe. It was dedicated to studying the outer reaches of the solar system. And it had this space camera that would take all kinds of flyby photos of the solar system. And this camera went far. We're talking billions of miles away from Earth. It's still up there, by the way. It's been roaming around the universe for more than 44 years. One of the groups in charge of this mission back then was called the Voyager Imaging Team. On that team was an astronomer, Carl Sagan. He's this blend of a physics professor and a poet. He became mainstream famous for hosting a TV show in the 80s called Cosmos, a super popular public television program. He made Americans think space was cool. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. When it came to the Voyager probe, Sagan had a special dream. Of course, he was super excited to see all the images it would produce, but he really, really wanted a shot at another classic photo of our planet, Earth. We already knew what Earth looked like from outer space. The famous blue marble photo taken by Apollo 17 depicts our planet as this massive swirl of color, water, clouds, land— But Sagan wanted to know what it looked like from really far away, beyond the scope of our imagination far away. Now, Sagan had lobbied hard for this photo to be taken early in the Voyager 1's mission. Some other scientists on the team objected to the idea. A photo taken from that far away and with the camera pointed at the sun, it was hard to pull it off. They could fry the camera and still not get anything. 
In the meanwhile, Voyager 1 kept taking photos of other stuff in its journey through the solar system. Saturn, Jupiter. But Sagan couldn't let it go. And by 1989, he was running out of time. The project had planned to shut off Voyager 1's cameras to conserve power. The spacecraft would stay in flight, but this would be the last call for any photos from Voyager. Sagan is like, please, please take this photo. He's out there like John Cusack with that radio, standing at the window, begging for one more chance. Sagan even begged one of the bigwigs over at NASA at the time to plead his case. And what do you know? The guy had a way with words. On Valentine's Day, 1989, just 34 minutes before Voyager 1's camera shut off, Sagan got his wish. The cameras turned, pulled their focus away from the rest of the solar system, and set their sights on Earth. And then, click the photo. The image is obscure, faint, really barely decipherable. You might take a look at it and go, that's it? A few faint white beams of light run up and down a muted gray-blue background. Suspended within the brightest beam sits a tiny speck of a thing. You really have to squint to see it. It looks like a piece of dust almost, like an ordinary star, like a blurry photo of the moon you might take with your phone from way far away, just like Sagan wanted it. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. This image, it's known far and wide now as the pale blue dot. Sagan even titled his book after it, in which he wrote about the photo. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, Every human being who ever was lived out their lives. That's Sagan himself in the audiobook version. His writing about this photo, it's almost like an ode, a valentine even, to every living being on it. Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, Every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. That's what Sagan thinks is important, that we're all contained in this tiny little bit of dust and that we must take care of this place, this fragile little pale blue dot. This was Sagan's Valentine to Earth. The only home we've ever known. Here we are at the end of our show. Our little messages and bottles have surfed the sound waves and washed up on the coastline of your eardrums. Uh, Just stay with me here. 
And I've been thinking about why these little acts of reaching out, of showing our love, expressing it, why they feel so momentous every time. Writing a silly little poem, kissing a friend on TV, taking a photo from an out-of-this-world angle, or writing something down on paper, rolling it up real tight, and setting it out to the world for someone, somewhere, to find. I wondered if Clint Buffington, the beachcomber from the top of our show, could tell me why the message in a bottle felt like such a fitting image for that vulnerable and scary and electrifying feeling of reaching out for love. It's a metaphor that we're all sort of alone, but we're not alone at being alone. And that's the ocean out there full of messages and bottles, which to me, I envision them as just friends I haven't met yet. And they're just out there. They're all out there hanging out, swirling around out there in the gyres, waiting for me, hopefully, to find them or someone. How poetic is that? Well, considering I just said coastline of your eardrums not too long ago, maybe I'm not the best judge of that. But I do feel that recognizing that loneliness and then reaching out for love anyways, that feels pretty radical every time, at every scale. Maybe there's like an equally poetic, less pollution-y way to do it or whatever. Just something to think about. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Amy Padula. Next week, we'll hear about how one man devoted his free time. And his doctor said, you need a hobby. And Simon said, I need a hobby. What, uh, hunting Nazis isn't enough of a hobby? The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. And hey, Not Past It is doing a live show. We're going to On Air Fest at the end of February. It's a festival that celebrates all things audio. So if you'll be in the New York City area on February 25th, come through. For tickets and more information, visit onairfest.com. Special thanks to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. My wife says that no one can ruin a Caribbean vacation faster than me. (laughs) 